Good afternoon, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by Two Ways, One Passion, Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Just arrived back to the domain here in New Jersey after spending several days over at the baseball winter meetings in San Diego. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that I came up with. Um, obviously, you hear a lot of the media attention on the baseball signings and the things that obviously are very pertinent to the game. Uh, Garrett Cole signing with the Yankees and Strasburg going back to Washington, Anthony Rendon to the Angels. And you can talk about every team, really, if you want. All 30 teams made some sort of moves. And there's teams that, you know, those moves were pretty quiet. Could it be maybe with the Rule 5 draft, which was held today? But you know, you do have a lot more action, a lot more interest in teams in baseball trying to get themselves a little bit better. And I think that's very important to look at because that's a stark contradiction to what we saw last year. And one of the things that stands out when you're looking at competition in a world of sports, not just baseball, but you want to get the sense that all teams are trying to get better and are going after the same prize. Last couple off seasons, you didn't see that. And I do think that there is something to the fact that collusion was involved amongst owners. And this offseason got off to a very good start with Mike Moustakis, who really has been the poster child of the last couple off seasons with free agency and good players not getting a free agent contract or even getting looked at by teams until well after the new year. Well, you got your top three free agents right now, Garrett Cole, Stephen Strasburg, Anthony Rendon, all signed. And I think of, and I'll get into this in a little bit, the New York Yankees history of getting the big pitcher in free agency when they need to. Now you can talk as a, whether you're a Yankees fan or a non-Yankees fan, and I really do believe that baseball fans are really put in two distinct groups. There are Yankee fans and people that are not Yankees fans. There's different categories of the non-Yankees fans. They could be not Yankees fans because they're so invested in the particular team that they root for that they don't acknowledge the Yankees. They don't spend any time thinking about the Yankees. Now, there's other fans that are very obsessed with the Yankees. They don't root for the Yankees, but they do everything they can to root against them. But if you look back at the history of free agency, which really started in the latter part of the 70s, Every time the New York Yankees have decided they're going to go out there and get the big pitcher, they've gone out there and got them. Now, you can make some exceptions. You can talk about some free agents that ended up going elsewhere, but when the Yankees have committed themselves to getting the guy in free agency when it comes to pitchers, they went and they got him. And it obviously starts from the days that they went in there and found the clause in a contract that existed with Catfish Hunter and the Oakland Athletics and when he was declared a free agent, George Steinbrenner went out there and made sure he got him. Now, you, you could talk about 10, 10 distinct starting pitcher free agents that the New York Yankees have signed, including Catfish Hunter, and it'll basically take you from Catfish Hunter to Garrett Cole. And this is what I, I do find this fascinating. And like I said, Passball Show belongs to you. Anything is sharing on your mind in a world of baseball, sports, and unified America, you can... Drop a line, whether it's Facebook Live, YouTube, um, 
You can give the show a call if you want, 732-364-3598. But you know, when we're sitting here talking about the amount of money that a particular pitcher or player gets in free agency, what does that mean for the next move? What does that mean for the other teams that are involved and want to get better? I don't care about any of that. Go listen to your repetitive sports talk that's going to repeat the same points that you're going to hear on different stations. Right now, I'm taking you from Catfish Hunter to Garrett Cole. And it's every time the Yankees have had an interest in getting the top free agent pitcher in a particular offseason, they've gone out there and done it. And, of course, Catfish Hunter became a free agent, a little bit of a loophole before the site's decision, before free agency became came. Uh, prevalent and started running rampant in the sport. And, of course, the Yankees ended up signing him. Now, after that, there was a pitcher that pitched for the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Yankees had seen him a couple times, racked up quite a bit of wins, is known more for his surgery than he is for a lot of what he did on the diamond, which is unfortunate because you can make a very good case for the Hall of Fame for this particular pitcher. But the Yankees went out there and made the trade for Tommy John. I'm sorry. I, I, they signed Tommy John as a free agent. And I apologize. My, my head kind of went spinning. I kind of lost track of what it is I was, that I was saying. But Tommy John's a free agent. The Yankees signed him. He wins 20 games for them two years in a row. And there's a very important role that he has on his team, becoming a top pitcher be able to go out there with Gittery as kind of the 1A. Catfish Hunters out of the game by then. You know, his last season was 1979. So after Hunter, they go right into Tommy John. They end up trading Tommy John, but he had some really good seasons for them. And at the time he was signed, he was the elite number one free agent pitcher that was out there and available. So they go from there, and then they make their first mistake. But we have to go with the proper context of what the heck's going on right here. Because I think this is what you have to you know, do. It's, it's so easy to talk about hindsight and what happened. And to say, hey, you know what? Let's brush it off and say that there was nothing really that was that important that we were expecting out of this particular player. And of course, I'm talking about Eddie Whitson. Eddie Whitson was a free agent for 1984 San Diego Padres, a team that, by the way, went to the World Series in 1984. Whitson was a part of it, may not have been their absolute number one ace, but was an up-and-comer and happened to be a free agent at the end of that season. Yankees went out there, gave them the money. And, you know, George Steinbrenner was disappointed. Of course, Eddie Whitson and Billy Martin are throwing haymakers at a bar. You know, it didn't work out with Eddie Whitson and the Yankees, but if you transform yourself into that time frame, Ed Whitson was the big pitcher that was on the free agent market in the Yankees, who were looking at 1984 and in 1985, like, what the hell happened? Haven't been in a World Series since 1981. It's a time where other teams are starting to get better. Let's go out there and get the best pitcher that's available on the free agent market. And they did that with Eddie Whitson. But, of course, it didn't work. So a couple of years later, there's another San Diego Padres pitcher that is a free agent that the Yankees say, hey, let's go out there and get, because he's the number one guy. And I'm talking about Andy Hawkins. And what stands out about Andy Hawkins, and I've, I'm such an advocate of this, because when you look at no hitters that are thrown in Major League Baseball, 
Andy Hawkins threw a no-hitter, which happened to be on the road, and lost. And is the only pitcher in baseball history to have ever thrown a no-hitter in a game that they lost. Now, because the game was in Chicago, and because they lost the game, the White Sox didn't get their last set of at-bats in the ninth inning. And because of that, Andy Hawkins pitched a complete game, which was only eight innings. When baseball decided to remove all of the no-hitters that didn't include nine innings, Andy Hawkins was lost in a shuffle and lost according to Elias Sports Bureau. Now, I believe that one should count as a no-hitter. He did everything he needed to do. His defense failed him. He didn't get a chance to pitch that ninth inning because the Yankees never scored any runs, and they lost 4 nothing. But Andy Hawkins was brought in to be the ace of the New York Yankees staff. You had an aging Ron Guidry. You had Tommy John, who was coming back in his second tour of duty with the Yankees. Hawkins was brought in there to be the ace, to be what Ed Whitson was supposed to be and wasn't. Didn't quite work out. So the Yankees, as they go through their rebuild in the early part of the 90s, decided they're going to bring in a big pitcher. Kind of like a John Lester for the Chicago Cubs while they were rebuilding. Let's bring in a big pitcher and have him work with our younger players. And as we get good, this guy's going to be our ace. And I know a lot of Yankee fans remember the likes of Jimmy Key and his impact on those Yankee staffs in 93, 94, when the Yankees were getting better, becoming an over 500 team. Of course, the strike destroys the 1994 season. Key gets hurt in 95, was a big factor in 96, though. And perhaps the Yankees don't do what they do by winning a World Series in 1996 if it wasn't for Jimmy Key. Not what he did that season, but the last couple kind of being that anchor, that veteran pitcher that carried the Yankees' staff. So after two misses with Whitson and Hawkins, they end up hitting with Jimmy Key. And the next one is disputed, but if you could think of it from an international standpoint, this guy was a huge name. This guy was a big deal when he came out there and his free agency was declared from the country of Cuba. And of course, I'm talking about Orlando El Duque Hernandez. And the Yankees were looking for a big pitcher. They were looking for somebody to be their ace. And they went out there and got themselves El Duque. They moved from El Duque to the 2001 offseason, where they failed in the World Series, a World Series that certainly could have and maybe should have in some cases gone the Yankees' way. It didn't. They make Paul O'Neill retire. They make Scott Brocious retire. Tino Martinez says, I don't want to retire. The Yankees say, well, we're not bringing you back. And they go to the New Yankees, and part of the New Yankees was getting that big starting pitcher, that guy that was at the top of the free agent market, and the Yankees went out there and signed Mike Mussina. Now, Mike Mussina was a Yankee from 2002 to 2008, right in between World Series championships. Didn't work out. He never won a World Series, but you know his whole stats, when he's in, you look at this guy as a baseball Hall of Famer, they a lot of it was what he did with his time with the New York Yankees. And, of course, 2008 season goes. Mike Messina retires after winning 20 games for the first time in his career. The Yankees are going out there to get that big pitcher. And, obviously, if I've, if I've kind of thrown some news to you, from Catfish Hunter to Tommy John to Eddie Whitson to uh, Andy Hawkins, Jimmy Key, El Duque, Mike Messina, then we're probably going to get to the part of this discussion where you know Yankees were going after the big free agent pitcher after the 2008 season. They got themselves C.C. Sabathia. And C.C. Sabathia was a Yankee for the better part 
of the next decade, retiring after this past year, helped them win a World Series championship in 2009, and was absolutely, uh, you know, as good of a pitcher he was, he was an even better figure when we're looking at all-time Yankees. Maybe not the best of all time, but certainly his number 52 should be up there with the plaques and the whatever tens of other numbers that are retired in the history of the New York Yankees franchise. You go from Sabathia to Masahiro Tanaka. Once again, Yankees want that ace. They think of Sabathia when he first came over. They think of Catfish Hunter. They think of Jimmy Key and El Duque and Mucina. And they set their eyes on Masahiro Tanaka, and they went out there and they signed him. And once again, you're looking at all these different times that happened before where the Yankees were not going to be outbid. They weren't going to allow any other team to offer more money or take this free agent away from them because in every single one of these instances, they committed themselves to signing the pitcher. And you see that happening again with Garrett Cole. And you could if you want, if you're an Angels apologist or maybe one of those mystery teams that Scott Boris threw out there to say, hey, there was more discussion with, with other teams. I don't think anybody stepped up to the $324 million plate. The Yankees basically got a hold of the agent and the player and said, we're not going to be outbid. That sucks for the Angels, who probably made a pretty good offer. That sucks for whatever team went out there and made an offer that may have been similar to what Steven Strasburg got with the Washington Nationals in his seven-year and $245 million that it took to get him. The Yankees were going to go above and beyond. If it became $400 million, if it became $500 million, the Yankees were going to make sure that their offer was superior. And it, you know what? You go back in these 10 pitchers that I'm telling you about, they would not be denied. You could bring up guys like Kayagawa and Carl Pavano, who were signed to big contracts but ended up not working out with the Yankees. Okay. But I'm telling, I'm giving you the timeline from Catfish Hunter to Garrett Cole, and there's 10 pitchers that they signed since before the advent of free agency, before the site's decision, before Major League Baseball players were given the freedom to become free agents. Yankees signed Catfish Hunter, the Yankees signed Garrett Cole. These are two pitchers that have just as much of an impact in the future of those teams and are expected to deliver championships. But it's interesting because every single time the Yankees needed to go out there and get a pitcher in free agency, they've done it. And what other team in baseball can say that? There's teams that have gone out there and gotten the guy at certain times. But what team has gone out there and said they're not going to be outdone? And this is why I'm not mad. You could be a non-Yankee fan and actually appreciate this deal. Appreciate a team that is willing to do whatever it needs to do to get the player that they need to because they care that much about winning a World Series. And if you heard the show over the last couple of years, there's many instances where there's teams that don't have as that ultimate goal to win themselves a World Series. It's to play enough competitive games. It's to maybe get themselves into the playoffs. But I respect the fact that the Yankees are willing to go above and beyond. Identify this need the same way they identified the need of Catfish Hunter and weren't going to be outbid. So unless you got sour grapes, there's no reason you can't give credit to this move.
couple other things I was talking about during the winter meetings. Um, obviously, a great time. And I always suggest anybody that's looking to get into the game, anybody that is looking to perhaps meet people, maybe get their careers to the next level, baseball winter meetings, a, a very good place to, to try and go out there and do it for the first time. But my point I was making earlier, we were talking about free agency. We were talking about the potential of a work stoppage when the next collective bargaining agreement expires within the next year or two. And it looks like, at least from the owner's perspective, they've had a little more interest in doing the things that they're doing, into adding players, looking at the free agent pool and thinking, hey, all right, out of these players, which ones am I willing to pay? Now, you look at some of the things that have to change in regards to the salary arbitration process because you're seeing a larger and larger list of players that are just essentially being dumped because their progression of where they've earned with salary is not where the team's value. And I'm segueing into one of my highlights of being at the baseball winter meetings. And, uh, you know, I, I shared this through social media. But it was great to be in the right place at the right time. But knowing that the baseball, uh, the Hall of Fame commit, uh, president, Tim Mead, was going to announce the, uh, the Veterans Committee's results for the Baseball Hall of Fame, obviously 10 players, actually 9 players, and one contributor, it was great to be in a spot where I could be about 15 minutes away from the, I'm sorry, 15 feet away from the live announcement. And to be in that presence, to hear the name of Marvin Miller, was something that really sent chills down my spine. Kind of put me in that moment like, wow, I can't believe this is actually happening. And for those of you that don't know very much about Marvin Miller, Marvin Miller was one of the major contributors and is responsible for free agency in Major League Baseball. And maybe you may not be a fan of Marvin Miller because of that. Maybe you blame Marvin Miller for the escalation in Major League Baseball player salaries. It's grown. There's a lot more money that players are making now. But you realize it's happened in all sports. It's not just baseball. You look at the average contract of a National Football League player, the average contract of a National Basketball Association player, the average contract of a National Hockey League player. Look at you know soccer throughout the world and how much these athletes get paid. You know anybody that's done in the Olympics goes on to play their respective sport or involve themselves in a sport professionally and gets compensated very well. Now listen, maybe it could all be traced to Marvin Miller. Him working with the young players, getting the overturn of the reserve clause, which was something that needed to happen in Major League Baseball. Baseball players were not being treated fairly. Owners had this control over the players. You signed to be whatever, a Yankee, a Red Sox, a Padres player, a Giant player, whatever. You were essentially enslaved to that owner. And obviously that doesn't come out perfect because nothing should be compared to slavery, but you're looking at a situation where players belong to the owners of the team that they played for. 
and could be retained by a yes or no question that was asked at the end of the year. And if you didn't perform year in and year out, that owner could just simply get rid of you. They could trade you, but they could also release you. You have a big season. You could negotiate with the owner, but if the owner didn't want to pay you, he wasn't going to pay you. If the owner didn't have the extra money to pay you, he wasn't going to pay you. You could be the MVP of the league for a Major League Baseball team. And if the owner didn't have the money to pay you, he didn't have to. There was nothing that gave you any rights as a player. And this went back through the 70s, but before that, since the advent of baseball. And since baseball has antitrust, which means the ability to govern itself, there's nothing that the players could have ever done. So when you talk about Marvin Miller and what he did for the players, stick it up for him, giving them rights, giving the ability to not be, you know, controlled by a particular team. And think about this. Marvin Miller had the chance, if he wanted to push for it, if he wanted to be an absolute jerk, he could have probably got every player to be a free agent after just that one year. Because the owners had such control over the players that every player had a one-year contract and an option for the next season. So once free agency was okay, if it was okay for Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally, two pitchers that decided to play out their option year, essentially a season to play for free, the Peter Seitz decision in the start of free agency, baseball ended up turning for the positive. But Marvin Miller could have said, hey, maybe every player in baseball should be a free agent right now. Now it ended up being beneficial. Hey, five years. Now it's six years. You earn that amount of time in Major League Baseball and then you get a chance to be a free agent. Now, doesn't mean that that team can't sign you. If you want to stay in one place, you still have that opportunity to, but players can become free agents and can sign with anybody. And that's the same rights that most of us have within any job. We don't believe it. You think of whatever job that you have, but you have the right to, on your day off, negotiate with a competing company. And if they're willing to, if, number one, if they're interested in you, number two, if they're willing to give you what it is that you're looking for, and you make that decision, you have a chance to switch companies, switch jobs, switch careers. If you're a baseball player, up through the site's decision and the, and the you know great things that Marvin Miller was able to do for the Players Association, you, you didn't have that right. You can play baseball, but you had to play for one team and one owner and take whatever money he was there to give you. That's why there were so many battles of different competing baseball leagues going back to the Players League of 1890, the Federal League of 1914, the Pacific Coast League, which almost came a major league in the 1950s. There's competing leagues, 
because they were willing to pay the players more of what they were worth than Major League Baseball was. And you go back in and jerk off owners that existed for so many years, that had this control over these players and the way that they treated them. And he can talk about right now how Marvin Miller may have sent things going in the other direction, which I agree with. You know, it's changed from the point where we're talking about different, you know, abilities to be compensated. All right, you can get a better contract. You can negotiate with all 30 teams now. Obviously, it was what, you know, 20, 28 at the time when this decision was made. 26, I'm sorry, because it was before 1977. So it was before the Blue Jays, before the Seattle Mariners. But you had 26 teams in baseball, I'm sorry, 24 teams in baseball that all could compete for the rights of the same player. And the owners hated that. And because of that, Marvin Miller was looked at as a person that took a control that the owners had and turned it into a wealth or almost um, an unfair allocation of assets in the other direction. And that wasn't the case. Players just wanted to have rights. Major League Baseball has flourished since the day of free agency. Look at where the revenues have gone. Look at where the TV contracts have helped to the game. Look at the value of every one of these Major League Baseball franchises. Now you could sit there and say that players are getting paid too much money, which is fine. I don't have any issue with that statement. I don't think it's wrong if you believe that. But is Marvin Miller the reason why the Yankees are the Yankees? And let's say the Miami Marlins are the Miami Marlins? I don't agree. And I'll tell you this, and I'll get off topic here. This wasn't something that I wanted to talk about today, but you think of salary caps as they exist in other sports. There's, you know, the salary cap in football, base, basketball, and hockey. You know about the luxury tax threshold, which provides an extremely soft cap, but what it does, it keeps teams from going above and beyond that for a long period of time, which is good. But it's not the hard cap that the other sports have. There's obviously loopholes that exist, whether it's basketball. Even in football, up to a certain point, there's some reasons why it could be acceptable to be over the salary cap for a certain period of time. But what a salary cap in the other sports actually do is it actually provides a number where every owner, as the owner of a franchise, understands that this number is the absolute highest amount of money that I could allocate towards payroll. And it may not change the game overnight. And this is why I suggest that baseball, if it's ever going to have a salary cap, number one, the players are never going to be on board. You're looking at a lengthy strike. You're looking at a player's union led right now by Tony Clark that is, is not going to say, hey, hey, it's okay, sure, give us a salary cap. What could help the sport in the long term is a salary cap coordinated with a salary floor. And you know what? That's going to keep the cheap owners, the owners that feel like they don't have to invest money in payroll, it's going to get them out of the sport. You know, if you're owning the Tampa Bay Rays, the Oakland Athletics, the Pittsburgh Pirates, even the Miami Marlins right now, 
and you think that it's acceptable to have a 30 to $60 million payroll, well, you're just going to have to be told, hey, you're, you got to have a floor of at least $120 million, a floor of at least $140 or $150 million. The NHL hasn't. Basketball and hockey have gotten up to it because of their strict salary cap numbers. Every team is about on the same page. It's worked in the NFL. It's worked in the NBA. Everybody has the same number that they're looking to be around. And yes, in some cases, you have a young team in football. The Seattle Seahawks are a pretty good example. You know, all those great players in the Legion of Boom, at some point, you know, they weren't so young anymore. They were going into their next series of contracts. They were going to get paid. There wasn't room for everybody. Quarterback wasn't getting paid. Well, at some point, he's going to get paid. And you know what that gave? It gave parity throughout the rest of the league because everybody was looking at the same number in regards to their salary cap number, where they had to be. So the great team, the dominating team, well, you know what? Some of those players become free agents and go to lesser teams, making the sport competitive. And the one thing that stands out about pro football that is different from Major League Baseball is the fact that that there is parity throughout the sport. Every team in the National Football League, year in and year out, legitimately has a chance to do something. Some years it doesn't look so good for some teams, but I could change. I could change in one offseason. I could change in one good draft. That could change in one good free agent push for some better players. And we keep hearing the excuses that come from the Rays and the Athletics and the Pirates and the Marlins, we don't have the money to compete. Well, why don't you mandate that the payroll level for each team has to be above a certain level? And you know what? If you're negotiating with the Players Association, who is never going to agree to a salary cap, there's a chance that they'll agree to a salary floor, making sure that those teams that just want to be cheap, they think they can do whatever it is that they want, Owners that are essentially throwbacks from the days of Charlie Comiskey and Branch Rickey are going to have to make a decision of either investing the money that they need to in payroll or getting the hell out of the sport. And if they do that, you know what? I promise you there's other billionaires and businessmen out there and women that wouldn't mind owning a Major League Baseball team. Bring in owners that understand that their payroll is going to be a certain number. And if they want to keep it low, they can keep it to where the salary floor is, but they must spend above it. And you ever want to get to a point in baseball where you're, where you're talking about a salary cap being feasible, you have to consider the salary floor as well. So Marvin Miller belongs in Baseball's Hall of Fame for a number of reasons. Number one, what do you think of when you hear the word pioneer? You think of the beginning of baseball, the advent of Major League Baseball. You know, Abner Doubleday, Spaulding, Albert Spaulding. Um, you think of Babe Ruth, you think of Jackie Robinson as far as players that transcended the sport. 
Branch Rickey. Not just what he did with Jackie Robinson, but uh, essentially eventing the farm system that we have in Major League Baseball right now. A lot of commissioners have done a lot of really good things. So if you're going to talk about all these other factors and all these other implementers that have changed the sport of Major League Baseball forever, how are you going to ignore Marvin Miller? And part of the reason that I've had a problem with the Baseball Hall of Fame process is the control that Major League Baseball owners have over it. You could be a lousy commissioner, but you're getting in the Hall of Fame because you represent the owners. The players finally got some representation here. Marvin Miller changed their lives forever. There isn't a player that's playing in Major League Baseball right now that doesn't owe it to Marvin Miller for what he did. Even some of the younger players that may not know. Their earning power, their ability to do what they do, their ability to be compensated the way they're being compensated is owed to Marvin Miller. This copyright broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPLA.com and JohnPLA LLC, is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charge and admission for a showing, is similarly prohibited. So a couple different projects I'm going to be working on really over the next couple months. And I do thank, you know, BaseballReference.com. You know, it's play index, can only do things up to a certain point. So I like the actual research that I have to do on my own to dig up careers and figure out two and three inning saves and totals. So I'm going to work on that. We're also going to work on what's been about a five-year project. And it's taken that long because I want to make sure that I'm 100% comfortable with every single player that I put on this list. You've heard me, if you've watched the past ball show before or listened to it, me talk about the top 100 offensive players in Major League Baseball history. That's ever in any professional baseball. And it's easy to just throw out names, but you know you need to get players within a certain category and start to understand their impact. Different time frames, comparing one generation to another in some cases. What makes what happened in the 19-teens any better than what's happened in the 20-teens? We can talk about Ty Cobb against Mike Trout. And here's the part is we're getting through 20 through 40 amongst the top offensive position players of all time. The question that has to be asked is where does Mike Trout rank right now as far as the best baseball player ever? And then there may be some people that want to make a case that he's better than Babe Ruth, which he's not. He's not better than Ty Cobb. He's not better than Ted Williams. He's not better than Lou Gehrig or Barry Bonds. He's, he's not better than Stan Musial or Hank Aaron or Willie Mays or Rogers Hornsby or Josh Gibson. But where does he rank? Is he number 21? Is he number 24? Is he number 39? I think he probably has to be in the top 40 amongst best offensive position players to ever play. Now, I'm not factoring in defense. You know why? This may sound like I'm, I'm being too old school or maybe I'm elderly and I just don't get it. And elderly, of course, we're talking about my mind. The defensive stats that were used in the 19-teens 
are not comparable to what we're talking about right now. Baseball players before a certain era used dish rags as gloves. Can you tell me that that makes them a bad defender? So I absolutely refuse to compare defense of a player of all time. Offensive position players ever. Because I can talk about certain errors and they all did the same thing. They hit the ball. Some were the best in error in times where there were no home runs. Some were the best where there were more home runs than he ever seen. Which one is better? We're going to talk about that over the next couple weeks. So what I, what I found pretty fascinating, and I was thinking about this the other day. The New York football Giants drop a, a close game to the Philadelphia Eagles, but what stands out the most is that their team, their ninth straight loss, team sitting there at two and eleven. We have a coach that has a career winning percentage under three hundred, and I started to think, what coaches can last 50, 60, 70, maybe even a hundred games? with a lower winning percentage or a low a winning percentage as low as Pat Shermer has with the New York Giants. It's pretty damning to him. As the season comes to an end, I'm sure a lot of New York football Giants fans would probably expect him to be relieved of his duties. And of course, the impact of a coach, a head coach in the National Football League, is much stronger than that of other coaches in other sports. And I think that's very important to understand that. You can't put on the same level a football head coach and a major league baseball manager. I'm not going to go into my man manager rant today. We're going to stay away from it. But it's very unsustainable for a coach to have such a low winning percentage. Now, Pat Shermer may get a chance to come back next year with the Giants, but if he is let go at the end of the season, three games to go, maybe the Giants win one and lose two, which is probably at their pace. They seem like about a 3-13 and 13 team. Maybe they'll lose all three and be two and 14, which will hurt his winning percentage even more. Odds are, if he loses his job as the head coach of the Giants, he could be the greatest offensive coordinator for the next 10 years, and he's probably not getting himself another job. Another coach that was impacted that way was Hugh Jackson. For whatever reason, the Cleveland Browns just never won with him. Even up through that stretch of the season where they ended up, you know, Picking up some more wins. Greg Williams did a good job. Freddie Kitchens was there as an assistant. It didn't, wasn't until Hugh Jackson was gone. So it's very hard for Hugh Jackson to be up as a coaching candidate in the National Football League because of his winning percentage. Rod Marinelli man, uh, coached the Detroit Lions to a 0-16 season. Same thing Hugh Jackson did. He was let go after that season. He... Even though he's gotten a couple jobs, he was an offensive co uh, defensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys, he hasn't gotten a job as a head coach since. So I had to go back to the days of Burt Bell. And if you, anybody that knows anything about Burt Bell, Burt Bell is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame because he was a commissioner. And the fact that he spent an awful lot of time as a pro football head coach. But it wasn't very good. Now, he did have a little stock in the Philadelphia Eagles in the 1950s. So it stands out because most coaches would not have a chance to continue their coaching with such a low winning percentage. And his winning percentage was actually under 200. 
So he won 10 games. He lost 46 games. He coached two ties. A 1-11 Eagles team in 1936. His last year was 1940 where the Eagles were 1-10. They did win five games in 1938, but they were 1 and 11, 2 8 and 1, 5 and 6, 1 9 and 1, and 1 and 10. Joined the Pittsburgh Steelers staff in 1946, was the head coach of two games, which you know involved two other coaches, a 1 9 and 1 Steelers team. But Burt Bell became the first commissioner of pro football history. And for that, he is in the Hall of Fame. And I, I find it fascinating that, you know, a coach with probably, and you have to, especially anybody that has coached uh, 50 or more games, or in Burt Bell's cases, a total of 58, there's nobody that has a lower winning percentage in the history of pro football coaches than the history of National Football League coaches. Uh, in the history of the American Alliance of Football Conference, the American Football Conference, the American Football League, anything you want to go back, there's never been a coach with a lower winning percentage than Burt Bell. But Burt Bell found a different way. Became commissioner. He's in a Hall of Fame. Just a reminder that this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive beach with aging produces a taste of smoothness and drinkability. You'll find a no beer at any cost. So just putting a little conclusion to the show today, I was looking at the perspective for the 2020 Detroit Tigers. And I'm not going to turn it into a team preview. But I was looking at a team that kind of had a fall from grace a couple years ago, but had another fall from grace this past season. They went from rebuilding, which is understood that that's what they're doing. Nobody expected the Tigers to make the playoffs from just to just being one of the worst teams in baseball and actually finishing with a worse record than the Baltimore Orioles. So I was pulling this up the other day and I wanted to see what the worst season that the Detroit Tigers ever had was. And one of them stands out because it's one of the worst seasons of all time. The 2003 team. And we're talking about a team that was one win, I'm sorry, one loss short of tying the all-time record for the most losses in the modern error. And I use the word error as kind of a joke there. S a silly kind of pun. But I'm trying to look and find where I wrote this down. And I don't even remember. Maybe I just lost it. But the bottom line is, what I came up with is five of the top 11 worst seasons in the history of the Detroit Tiger franchises have happened since 2002. And I found that absolutely fascinating. You're looking at the Detroit Tigers, a team that has been around since 1901. One of the original eight teams of the American League with Ben Johnson. A good team in the first decade or so. They've won World Series championships in 19, what was it, 1935, 45, 68, and 84. Four-time World Series champions. 
They've been in the World Series a handful of years, most recently in 2012, and then before that, 2006. So you're talking about a team that has some pride, has some of the best baseball players that have ever played. Ty Cobb was a Tiger. Hank Greenberg was a Tiger. You know, Miguel Cabrera, Al Kaline. So what has happened is you're talking about a proud franchise really up till the turn of the last century. Their first century, they were a pretty good team. They weren't the Yankees. They weren't the Cardinals. They weren't the Athletics. But they were pretty good. They won more than they lost. But all of a sudden, the new century turns to the 2000s, to the 21st century. And the Tigers had a 265 winning percentage in 2003. A 292 winning percentage in 2019. A 342 winning percentage in 2002. And a 395 winning percentage in both 2017 and 2018. So the last three years, the Tigers have had three of the lowest winning percentages in the entire 118-year history of their franchise. A little bit of a recap of the show today. Thank everybody, as always, for tuning in. We spoke about Marvin Miller getting in the Hall of Fame, obviously well-deserved. Garrett Cole getting a contract for the New York Yankees. And listen, whenever the Yankees have wanted to get that big pitcher, that big difference-making pitcher, they go out there and they do it. They did it with Catfish Hunter. They did it with Tommy John. They signed Ed Whitson. They signed Andy Hawkins. They signed Jimmy Key, El Duque, Mike Messina, CeCe Sabathia, Masahiro Tanaka, and now Garrett Cole. We'll throw the winning percentages of both the, the head coaches, lowest in National Football League history, and the history of the Detroit Tigers franchises up on JohnPielli.com. We'll be back with you in a couple days. I'm going to do a show Saturday. So anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, you can tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. You can just Google my name, find some way to reach out to me, download the podcast, iTunes, Google Play. You can also search YouTube. Every one of my recent videos are up there. So God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.